Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as you've already heard, uh, this is the third Sunday in Advent, and it's a day when we traditionally reflect on joy. We light a pink candle instead of a purple one, and so it's like this brief infusion of light into a season that is long and dark. And even though pink might remind us of Barbie and bubblegum and three-year-old birthday parties and sprinkles, this Sunday is not about that kind of joy. It's not about a joy that is flimsy or fleeting or fun even. It's a joy that is anchored in the ancient story of who God is, who he has always been, and who he will always be for us. God is always a light breaking into our darkness. He is always a life breaking into our death. And he's always a deliverer who always comes to us at our most desperate and lifts us out of the pit. That's who God is, and so the joy of this third Sunday of Advent is the joy of the sureness and the nearness of God's coming, even while we wait. It's a joy that feels a lot more like longing than like a three-year-old's birthday party. And I quoted C.S. Lewis in my letter this week, who said that joy is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. And sometimes people use the word rose instead of pink for the color that we use this day. And I think that's just because it's a nicer sounding word. It sounds a little fancier. No one thinks of bubblegum when you say, let's light the rose candle. But rose has another connotation too. It's a flower. And as it happens, we are going to sing a hymn in just a few minutes about a rose that takes these images from the book of Isaiah from chapters 35 and 11, this rose that is blooming in the desert, a rose that is blooming from a branch that has not borne fruit for a long time. And this hymn gets exactly at that kind of joy that I'm talking about. You can see the lyrics on your sheet or when we sing it later, but it describes Jesus' birth as a rose blooming in the dead of winter when half spent was the night. And I just love that line. I remember really vividly a couple years ago when we were still kind of in the thick of COVID and our church was celebrating Christmas Eve in a parking lot outside. And I remember when we sang that song, this lump just suddenly came into my throat. I just really felt it in that moment when half spent was the night. This world's long night, the long night we might call Advent, was already half spent, and here we were, still waiting, still shivering in the cold, still straining our eyes in the dark, still trying to convince ourselves that God really was coming, even when so often all we can feel is his absence. God broke into his creation when half spent was the night. God is always breaking into his creation when half spent is the night. And God will break into his creation again. He will establish a kingdom that ends this long night forever. And sometimes we catch glimpses of that, these little breakings in, little lights puncturing the darkness. Sometimes we get to taste and see the reality of God's presence, of God's goodness, God's deep love for us, his nearness. Sometimes even if just for a few minutes we can actually hold on to a vision and experience of God's kingdom. 
And those moments are what we call joy, that desire for something still about to be that Lewis described. And that kind of joy can get us through the long advent of our lives. And that's the kind of joy that today's passage from Isaiah 65 is describing. We're continuing our very short Advent series called Imagining the Kingdom, where each Sunday we're reading the lessons from the prophet Isaiah, and we're tapping into the prophet's capacity to imagine God's coming kingdom, even in the middle of a world where everything seems really broken and messed up. And the community that Isaiah is prophesying to has known defeat and exile and destruction and famine and hardship. By chapter 65, where we're almost at the end of the book, they've also turned in on themselves. They are obsessed with infighting and these petty feuds. And the last few chapters of Isaiah are pretty bleak. And this is where this vision of chapter 65, 17 to 25 breaks in. It's what Andy read a few minutes ago. When half spent was the night, when they didn't expect it, when all they've known is trouble and hopelessness and despair, suddenly God breaks in. He gives them this vision. And what Isaiah describes here is God's final once for all breaking into his creation, not just bringing his people home from exile, not just ending this war or that one or overturning these enemies, but this once-for-all reversal of everything that has gone wrong in humanity and creation and their relationship with God from the beginning of time and into forever. And this inbreaking of God is their only hope because they can't save themselves from the powers of exile, from more powerful enemies, from these endless wars, from their temple being destroyed, from their own sin, and from death. And we can't either. We need God to be who he is and to do what he does and to break in. And Isaiah tells us again and again in these poetic, vivid words that he will. Isaiah gives us a picture of that to hold on to, to fuel our imaginations, to behold. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. And in this new creation, in this new city, there's no more weeping or distress. There is only joy because the sorrows of this life have ended. There's no infant mortality, no miscarriage, no stillbirth, no pain in childbirth. There's no life that ends too soon. There's no futility to work. There's no injustice in the economic systems. There's no survival of the fittest in nature. There are no untamed forces of death running rampant on the earth anymore. And there is no distance whatsoever between God and his people. Before they can even cry out to him, he is there listening and responding. And in this vision, everything that has been set in motion since Adam and Eve first turned away from God, all of the consequences of human wrongdoing that have been part of the story since the first pages of Scripture, it is all being overturned here. God is healing the story of humanity. And then we catch a glimpse of it again at the very end of Scripture, in the very last pages of Revelation, where there is this image that is built again on Isaiah's vision, declaring this is where the world is going. 
a new creation, a new city, everything set right. And that is the story of God in the Bible from the start to the finish. God is always the one who breaks in and heals what's been broken, whether it's been broken because of human evil, human ignorance, human sin, or because of God's judgment on that sin, or because of those forces of death that are running rampant. God will one day break in because that's who God is and what God does. And that's what we see in Isaiah 65. God sets this image of the coming kingdom before our eyes so our minds, our imaginations can grasp it, so we can hold on to it as true and we can hope that it comes. And this act of imagining the kingdom, of imagining God and his action in the world, it's not a flight of fancy, it's not escapism, it's not wishful thinking, it's a discipline. A kingdom imagination is something we cultivate with our minds, with our desires, with our actions. We use everything in our power to fix our minds on this story, to pay attention to imagine this reality. So we look at Jesus, our King who is coming, and we read scripture, all of it, the histories, the Psalms, the prophets, the gospels, the stories of the first Christians and the messiness of the early church. We sing songs that are true. We pray prayers that are true. We behold art and poetry and creation that stirs our longing for the beauty of God to come. And we worship, we participate in the community of God's people. We come to church. It takes quite an act of kingdom imagination to believe that right here in this elementary school cafeteria, God is breaking in and we are about to feast at the king's table. And we spend our time and our money and our lives and our actions in love for others, making the kingdom more visible in small ways here and now. And imagining the kingdom in this way, it matters. For when it reminds us that our world, so much of what we see, is not God's kingdom. This is not the way it was meant to be, and we don't have to make peace with that. It keeps us a little uncomfortable, always longing for that joy that is still about to be. But more than that, imagining God's kingdom actually changes us. What we look at, what we set our eyes on, what we imagine and behold when we think about God, that is what transforms us. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says that all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. When we imagine the glory of God as revealed in his once-for-all kingdom, when this is the image that shapes our thoughts and our imaginations and our lives, we are changed because we were made to behold God. We were made to live under his reign in his kingdom. And so when we can't imagine the kingdom, our lives start to turn inward. They start to get very small. They start to become joyless. And I have a story about this, and it involves something in nature, so you'll probably be shocked by that if you've heard me preach before. Uh, there is this cardinal that lives in a bush in our front yard, 
And we can see it through our front windows, and we've seen it since it was a little fledgling first out of the nest learning to fly. But when he was still just a fledgling, just a little scrappy, not fully grown cardinal, he discovered the passenger side mirror of my car. And so all day long, ever since, all he does is fly between this bush and that mirror and look at himself. And he can't even like perch on anywhere on the car. And so he'll get as close as he can and he'll try to sort of like grasp at this piece of rubber that's hanging off of my very old car window. And he will stare at himself until he loses his grip and then go back to his shrub, take a breather, and then come right back and do it again. And he's now many months older. He should be an adult, but his obsession with himself has changed him. He still has these little patchy tufts of gray feathers, like his plumage is not the bright red it's supposed to be. And he's actually kind of thin and scrawny looking instead of a nice chubby cardinal ready for winter because he's too obsessed to eat. We never hear him calling or singing. We actually never see him fly any higher than that space between the shrub and my car window. He has failed to grow into the fullness and the beauty of what a cardinal was made to be. His gaze turned inward on himself, and it's destroying him. And we live in a world that has become like that cardinal, hopelessly turned inward on itself. And the early Christians talked about sin in exactly that way. Less about specific bad things we do, and more about what we are looking at, what we are desiring, what we are longing for. And St. Augustine used this Latin phrase, homo incurvatus in si, humanity curved in on itself. And the idea is that we were made for God, we were made to seek our joy and our love in him, in his care for us, in his good purpose for our lives, but we seek it in ourselves. We seek it in things other than God. And so we slowly curve inward in this self-obsession, away from God, away from others, away from this love that we were made for. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what set in motion this whole inward pattern for the human story. And like the cardinal, this turning inward ultimately destroys us. Our feathers are patchy. Our hungers go unmet. Our work every day is meaningless. Our song goes silent. We cannot possibly give ourselves what we seek. Only God can. And so the further inward we curve, the less satisfied we become, the more we have to manipulate and control the world around us to give us what we seek, the more we have to deceive ourselves about who we really are when we look at ourselves. And a world full of homo and curvatus in sea quickly becomes a world full of pain and evil and suffering. But at Christmas, God broke in. God met our self-love with his other love. God curved toward us. When we were obsessed with becoming like God, God became one of us. And he took the full weight of this homo incurvatus in sea, and he put it to death once and for all in his own body on the cross. And that inbreaking at the first Christmas 
the birth of Jesus changed everything for us. It began to uncurve us. It began God's long work of straightening humanity out and setting things right, a work that will one day end in that vision from Isaiah 65. So now in this long advent of life, we wait for that vision. We cultivate imaginations for it. We strain toward that joy that is still about to be. Because like my little cardinal friend, what we behold changes us. So let's behold what is true and good and beautiful and real. Let's imagine God's presence breaking into our midst, remaking the world, and making us whole once and for all and forever. Amen.